everybody it's Thomas again um, I wanted to read through Matthew Henry's commentary on Romans chapter 13 um, for my own edification and uh, I thought it might be good to record it uh, because we're talking so much today in our culture and nation as Christians about our duties um, to civil government and uh, how are we to obey and respect our rulers, our leaders, our overlords? How far does our submission go? What are its proper boundaries? Um, and I've, to my knowledge, not read all of Matthew Henry on Romans 13 before. And uh, so we're going to kind of be reading this together for the first time. Um, I'm going to just read it without commentary and uh, hope you enjoy it and find it edifying. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 6. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. That's the old King James, of course, that Henry would have there. Now his comments on these first six verses. We are here taught how to conduct ourselves towards magistrates and those that are in authority over us, called here the higher powers, intimating their authority, their powers, and their dignity, their higher powers, including not only the king as supreme, but all inferior magistrates under him. And yet it is expressed not by the persons that are in that power, but the place of power itself in which they are. How, however, uh, sorry, however, the persons themselves may be wicked, and of those vile persons whom the citizen of Zion contemneth, Psalm 15:4, yet the just power which they have must be submitted to and obeyed. The apostle had taught us in the foregoing chapter not to avenge ourselves nor to recompense evil for evil. But, lest it should seem as if this did cancel the ordinance of a civil magistracy among Christians, he takes occasion to assert the necessity of it, and of the due infliction of punishment upon evildoers, however it may look like recompensing evil for evil. Observe, one, the duty enjoined, that every soul be subject, every soul, every person, one as well as another, not excluding the clergy who call themselves spiritual persons. However, the Church of Rome may not only exempt 
such from subjection to the civil powers, but place them in authority above them, making the greatest princes subject to the Pope, who thus exalteth himself above all that is called God. Every soul, not that our consciences are to be subjected to the will of any man, it is God's prerogative to make laws immediately to bind conscience, and we must render to God the things that are God's. But it intimates that our subjection must be free and voluntary, sincere and hearty. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought. Ecclesiastes 10.20 To compass and imagine our treason begun. The subjection of soul here required includes inward honor, 1 Peter 2.17, and outward reverence and respect, both in speaking to them and in speaking of them. Obedience to their commands in things lawful and honest. Obedience to their commands in things lawful and honest. And in other things, a patient subjection to the penalty without resistance. A conformity in everything to the place and duty of subjects, bringing our minds to the relation and condition and the inferiority and subordination of it. They are higher powers, be content they should be so, and submit to them accordingly. Now there was good reason for the pressing of this duty of subjection to civil magistrates. One, because of the reproach which the Christian religion lay under in the world as, a, as an enemy to public peace, order, and government, as a sect that turned the world upside down, and the embracers of it as enemies to Caesar, and the, more, and the more because the leaders were Galileans, an old slander. Jerusalem was represented as a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, Ezra 4, 15 and 16. Our Lord Jesus was so reproached, though he told them his kingdom was not of this world. No marvel, then, if his followers have been loaded, uh, sorry, if his followers have been loaded in all ages with the like calumnies called factious, seditious, and turbulent, and looked upon as the troublers of the land, their enemies having found such representations needful for the justifying of their barbarous rage against them. The apostle, therefore, for the obviating of this reproach and the clearing of Christianity from it, shows that obedience to civil magistrates is one of the laws of Christ, whose religion helps to make people good subjects. And it was very unjust to charge upon Christianity that faction and rebellion to which its principles and rules are so directly contrary. 2. Because of the temptation which the Christians lay under to be otherwise affected to civil magistrates, some of them being originally Jews, and so leavened with a principle that it was unmeet for any of the seed of Abraham to be subject to one of, an, of another nation. Their king must be of their brethren, Deuteronomy 17.15. Besides, Paul had taught them that they were not under the law, they were made free by Christ. Lest this liberty should be turned into licentiousness and misconstrued to countenance faction and rebellion, the apostle enjoins obedience to civil government, which was the more necessary to be pressed now because the magistrates were heathens and unbelievers, which yet did not destroy their civil power and authority. Besides, the civil powers were persecuting powers. The body of the law was against them. 
2. The reasons to enforce this duty. Why must we be subject? Get a drink of water here. 1. For wrath's sake. Because of the danger we run ourselves into by resistance. Magistrates bear the sword. And to oppose them is to, hazard, is to hazard all that is dear to us in this world. For it is to no purpose to contend with him that bears the sword. The Christians were then in those persecuting times obnoxious to the sword of the magistrate for their religion. And they needed not make themselves more obnoxious by their rebellion. The least show of resistance or sedition in a Christian would soon be aggravated and improved and would be very prejudicial to the whole society and therefore they had more need than others to be exact in their subjection that those who had so much occasion against them in the matter of their god might have no other occasion to this head must that argument be referred verse 2 those that resist shall receive to themselves damnation crema lepsantai they shall be called to an account for it God will reckon with them for it, because the resistance reflects upon them, uh, upon him. The magistrates will reckon with them for it. They will come under the lash of the law and will find the higher powers too high to be trampled upon, all civil governments being justly strict and severe against treason and rebellion. So it follows. Verse 3. Rulers are a terror. This is a good argument, but it is low for a Christian. Two, we must be subject not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. Not so much, um, whoops, sorry, my computer. For medine ponai, I guess this is uh, Latin here. From the fear of punishment as virtutis amor, from the love of virtue. This makes common civil offices acceptable to God when they are done for conscience' sake, with an eye to God, to his providence putting us into such relations, and to his precept making subjection the duty of those relations. Thus the same thing may be done from a very different principle. Now to oblige conscience to this subjection, he argues verses 1 through 4 and verse 6, firstly, from the institution of magistracy, there is no power but of God. God, as the ruler and governor of the world, hath appointed the ordinance of magistracy, so that all civil power is derived from him, as from its original, and he hath by his providence put the administration into those hands, whatever they are that have it. By him kings reign, Proverbs 8.15. The usurpation of power and the abuse of power are not of God, for he is not the author of sin, but the power itself is. As our natural powers, though often abused and made instruments of sin, are from God's creating power, so civil powers are from God's governing power. Let's read that again. As our natural powers, though often abused and made instruments of sin, are from God's creating power, so civil powers are from God's governing power. The most unjust and oppressive princes in the world have no power but what is given them from above. John 19.11 
the divine providence being in a special manner conversant about those changes and revolutions of governments which have such an influence upon states and kingdoms and such a multitude of particular persons and smaller communities or it may be meant of government in general it is an instance of god's wisdom power and goodness in the management of mankind that he has disposed them into such a state as distinguishes between governors and governed and has not left them like the fishes of the sea where the greater devour the less he did herein consult the benefit of his creatures the powers that be whatever the particular form and method of government are whether by monarchy aristocracy or democracy wherever the governing power is lodged it, it is an ordinance of god and it is to be received and submitted to accordingly though immediately an ordinance of man first peter 2 13 yet originally an ordinance of god ordained of god tetagimni a military word signifying not only um, the ordination of magistrates but the subordination of inferior magistrates to the supreme as in an army for among magistrates there is a diversity of gifts and trusts and services hence it follows verse 2 that whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of god there are other things from god that are the greatest calamities but magistracy is from god as an ordinance that is it is a great law and it is a and it is a great blessing so that the children of belial that will not endure the yoke of government will be found breaking a law and despising a blessing magistrates are, are therefore called gods psalm 82 verse 6 because they bear the image of god's authority and those who spurn at their power reflect upon god himself this is not all this is not at all applicable uh, applicable to the particular rights of kings and kingdoms and the branches of their constitution nor can any certain rule be fetched from this for the modeling of the original contracts between the governors and governed but it is intended for direction to private persons in their private capacity to behave themselves quietly and peaceably in the sphere in which god has set them with a due regard to the civil powers which god in his providence has set over them first timothy 2 1 and 2. magistrates are here again and again called god's ministers he is the minister of god verses 4 and 6. magistrates are in a more peculiar manner god's servants the dignity they have they have calls for duty though they are lords to us they are servants to god have work to do for him and an account to render to him in the administration of public justice the the determining of quarrels the protecting of the innocent the righting of the wronged the punishing of offenders and the preserving of national peace and order that every man may not do what is right in his own eyes in these things it is that magistrates act as god's ministers as the killing of an inferior magistrate while he is actually doing his duty is accounted treason against the prince so the resisting of any magistrates in the discharge of these duties of their place is the resisting of an ordinance of god there's a lot to say about all this I haven't finished it yet and um well I'm just going to refrain <laughs> all right go, continuing to 
from the intention of magistracy. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil, etc. Magistracy was designed to be, one, a terror to evil works and evil workers. They bear the sword, not only the sword of war, but the sword of justice. They are heirs of restraint to put offenders to shame. Laish wanted such, Judges 18.7. Such is the power of sin and corruption that many will not be restrained from the greatest enormities and such as are most pernicious to human society by any regard to the law of God and nature or the wrath to come. But only by the fear of temporal punishments, which the willfulness and perverseness of degenerate mankind have made necessary. Hence it appears that laws with, with penalties for the lawless and, and disobedient, 1 Timothy 1.9, must be constituted in Christian nations, and are agreeable with, and not contradictory to, the gospel. When men are become such beasts, such ravenous beasts, to one to another, they must be dealt with accordingly, taken and destroyed in terrorim to deter others. The horse and the mule must thus uh, be held in with bit and bridle. In this work, the magistrate is the minister of God, verse 4. He acts as God's agent to whom vengeance belongs and therefore must take heed of infusing into his judgments any private personal resentments of his own, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. In this, the judicial processes of the most vigilant faithful magistrates, though some faint resemblance and prelude of the judgments of the great day, yet come far short of the judgment of God. They reach only to the evil act, can execute wrath only on him that doeth evil. But God's judgment extends to the evil thought, and is a discerner of the intents of the heart. He beareth not the sword in vain. It is not for nothing that God hath put such a power into the magistrate's hand, but it is intended for the restraining and suppressing of disorders. And therefore, if thou do that which is evil, which falls under the cognizance and censure of the civil magistrate, be afraid. For civil powers have quick eyes and long arms. It is a good thing when the punishment of malefactors is managed as an ordinance of God, instituted and appointed by him. First, as a holy God that hates sin, against which, as it appears and puts up its head, a public testimony is thus born. Secondly, as king of nations, and the God of peace and order, which are hereby preserved. Thirdly, as the protector of the good, whose persons, families, estates, and names are by this means hedged about. Fourthly, as one that desires not the eternal ruin of sinners, but by the punishment of some would terrify others, and so prevent the like w wickedness that others may hear and fear, and do no more presumptuously. Nay, it is intended for a kindness to those that are punished, that by the destruction of the flesh the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 2. A praise to those that do well. Those that keep in the way of their duty shall have the commendation and protection of the civil powers to their credit and comfort. Do that which is good, verse 3, and thou needest not be afraid of the power, which, though terrible, reaches none but those that by their own sin 
make themselves obnoxious to it. The fire burns only that which is combustible. Nay, thou shalt have praise of it. This is the intention of magistracy, and therefore we must, for conscience sake, be subject to it as a constitution designed for the public good, to which all private interests must give way. But pity it is that ever this gracious intention should be perverted, and that those who bear the sword, while they countenance and connive at sin, should be a terror to those who do well. But so it is, when the vilest men are exalted, Psalm 12, 1 and verse 8, and yet even then the blessing and benefit of a common protection and a face of government and order are such that it is our duty in that case rather to submit to persecution for well-doing and to take it patiently than by any irregular and disorderly practices to attempt a redress. Never did sovereign prince pervert the ends of government as Nero did, and yet to him Paul appealed, and under him had the protection of the law and the inferior magistrates more than once. Better a bad government than none at all. And that's very true, I will have to say that, that um, look at our government right now, very imperfect, even if we are more you know, in favor of Trump than the alternative, it's still very imperfect, but it is still better than nothing. And I do fear that many in our nation today is not at all convinced of that. Even many conservative Christians are far more convinced that if we had no government whatsoever, um, somehow that would, you know, be safer and better overall. Is there a tipping point? Of course. Is there a point where the government becomes not a government and just a tyrant? Yes. That's true. Um, Matthew Henry has not forgotten, and of course, Scripture has not forgotten what else Scripture says. God has not forgotten his own word. Um, we know that, you know, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serving God and what it cost them. It could have cost them their lives if it wasn't a miracle. We know what happened to, oh, Jesus himself, uh, his, his disciples, his apostles throughout church history. Um, we know oftentimes that government can protect evil and harm good, and yet we are to go out of our way as much as we can, as much as depends upon us to live peaceably. Um, there's real injustice going on right now, I think first with the coronavirus and then now most recently with uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, yes, police brutality is real. Yes, clearly in our nation's history, there is a stain of slavery and racism against black people and I think that racism is now going more and more across ethnic groups. We're all becoming increasingly, sadly, uh, prejudiced against one another. Of course, it's been that way for a long time since since the fall, really, as well. But uh, you know, is the right response to government 
violent rioting or peaceful protesting? Well, if our laws and government allows for such peaceful protesting, then, and, and as it does, then certainly we are being lawful when we protest. Certainly a good and wise government is going to um, have checks and balances on its power and authority as our good government does. And as is enshrined in the Constitution and in our Bill of Rights and so on. And so, under this good government that we have in our nation, there is built into it righteous, wise, I would even say biblical checks and balances. And so we may make full use of those means, but we ought not to transgress them. Uh, we should not turn into violent rioters and looters, harming and killing and burning and destroying that is illegal, it doesn't really prove anything. It's wicked. It is not going to be blessed by God. Even if it began with some good intent for it to devolve to such plain and open wickedness and manifestation of the sinful passions of the flesh, robs it of any of its good intention. And we can look at awful Nero was, as Matthew Henry says, and yet the Apostle Paul is able to appeal there and find some measure of protections. So, this is not an easy subject. There's more here for me to read, so I'm going to continue, because I said I wasn't going to comment. <laughs> Number three, from our interest in it, he is the minister of God to thee for good. Thou hast the benefit and advantage of the government, and therefore must do what thou canst to preserve it, and nothing to disturb it. Protection draws allegiance. If we have protection from the government, we owe subjection to it. By upholding the government, we keep up our own hedge. This subjection is likewise consented to by the tribute we pay. Verse 6, For this cause pay you tribute, as a testimony of your submission, and an acknowledgment that in conscience you think it is think it to be due. You do by paying taxes contribute your share to the support of the power. If therefore you be not subject, you do but pull down with one hand what you support with the other. And is that conscience? By your paying tribute you not only own the magistrate's authority, but the blessing of that authority to yourselves, a sense of which you thereby testify, giving him that as a recompense for the great pains he takes in the government. For honor is a burden, and if he do as he ought, he is attending continually upon this very thing. For it is enough to take up all a man's thoughts and time, in consideration of which fatigue uh, we pay tribute and must be subject. Pay you tribute, forus salite. He does not say you give it as an alms, but you pay it as a just debt or lend it to be repaid in all the blessings and advantages of public government, of which you reap the benefit. This is the lesson the apostle teaches, and it becomes all Christians to learn and practice. Uh, sorry, to learn and practice it, that the godly in the land may be found, whatever others are, the quiet and the peaceable in the land. And I think by and large that is 
manifest in our nation, in the United States. Look who is violently rioting right now. Do you think that most of them are genuine and sincere believers? I think not. There's a lot of certainly um, belly aching that we do. Some righteous, some perhaps not so righteous in our nation uh, among Christians. We get very frustrated with our government and our rulers, and perhaps we have fallen into the sin of not speaking of them with the dignity and authority and kindness that we ought all the time. Um, and yet, it's still true that we submit to the government, and when we protest, we by and large have protested peacefully and submitted as much and as far as we possibly can. But we must render to God the things that are God's. And so when government contradicts that, we must obey God rather than men. Now the rub lies in figuring out, well, that very line. When is it clearly and for sure against what God has decreed? Because it's also true that there's many things that our government does and upholds that is against what God wills. Um, but we must still respect them and submit to them insofar as we are able in keeping with holiness and godliness. We can never justify sinning uh, by saying, well, we're just obeying God's commands. Um, but not everything that the government commands that we disagree with uh, involves us with sinning. So if the churches are closed because of the government's perhaps poor judgment on the severity of coronavirus, it's not a straight line to say they are causing us to sin by preventing us from worshiping if there is a legitimate reason in this fallen world um, for the protection of, of God's people. The government, as its ministers, are saying it is not safe and just to do so. Um, I'm not saying I agree with how the government has handled it. I, in general, don't, and I've had the benefit of living in Florida during this where our worship was never shut down. Uh, and so I'm speaking from a perspective of not having to endure missing worship. Um, and I know many of you have, um, but I don't think the answer is quite as simple as just saying, um, you must worship every Sunday. If you're sick, very sick and dangerously sick to yourself and perhaps to others, contagious, truly, um, you ought not to go to church. I think we all understand that on the individual level when we're feeling very ill, we don't go to church. And, um, well, if the thought by the government is this is dangerous, it's a novel virus, we need to step in here, kind of like um, your church building we have discovered is full of, of uh, asbestos and it's, you know, you're going to be poisoned. So we're not saying worship is illegal. We're saying it's not safe right now. Um, we have to take these things into consideration. All right, so I'm going to now go through verses 7 through 10. And his comments on that. Uh, and I think at that point I will wrap it up here. Let me see how much time I have left. Okay, we got enough time. All right, let's continue. Render therefore to all their dues. This is verse 7. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. 
And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We are here taught a lesson of justice and charity. 1. Of justice. Verse 7. Render therefore to all their dues, especially to magistrates, for this refers to what goes before, and likewise to all with whom we have to do. To be just is to give to all their due, to give everybody his own. What we have, we have as stewards. Others have an interest in it and must have their dues. Render to God his due in the first place, to yourselves, to, you fa to your families, there's a lot of typos in this, your relations to the commonwealth, to the church, to the poor, to those that you have dealings with in buying, selling, exchanging, etc. Render to all their dues, and that readily and cheerfully, not tarrying till you are by law compelled to it. He specifies, one, due taxes. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom. Most of the countries where the gospel was first preached were subject at this time to the Roman yoke and were made provinces of the empire. He wrote this to the Romans, who, as they were rich, so they were drained by taxes and impositions, to the just and honest payment of which they are here pressed by the apostle. Some distinguish between tribute and custom, understanding by the former constant standing taxes, and by the latter those which were occasionally required, both which are to be faithfully and conscientiously paid as they become legally due. Our Lord has borne when his mother uh, went to be taxed, and he enjoined the payment of tribute to Caesar. Many who in other things seem to be just, yet make no conscience of this, but pass it off with a false, ill-favored maxim, that it is no sin to cheat the king, directly contrary to Paul's rule. Tribute to whom tribute is due. 2. Due respect. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This sums up the duty which we owe not only to magistrates, but to all superiors, parents, masters, all that are over us in the Lord, according to the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and mother. Compare Leviticus 19.3. You shall fear every man, his mother, and his father, not with a fear of amazement, but a loving, reverent, respectful, obediential fear. Where there is not this respect in the heart to our superiors, no other duty will be paid aright. It's a pretty profound statement. If you can't respect those in authority over you, whether it's in the home or in the church or in society, there's going to be nothing that is done properly and chaos will reign. 3. Do payments of debts. Verse 8. Owe no man anything. That is, do not continue in any one's debt while you are able to pay it, further than by at least the tacit consent of the person to whom you are indebted. Give every one his own. Do not spend that upon yourselves which you owe to others. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. Psalm 37.21. Don't go into debt. To the extent that you do or have to or have wickedly, pay it back as much as you can. Make sacrifices to do so. Another lesson our nation needs to learn. Many that are very sensible of the trouble think little of the sin of being in debt. Two, of charity. Owe no man anything. Afalete. You do owe. By the way, I wish that they would just, you know, write things 
Um, like if it's in Greek or Hebrew, instead of transliterating. I know Greek and Hebrew, but when they transliterate it, for some reason I can't pronounce it properly anymore. Anyway, you do owe no man anything. Because I think some of this is the Greek, and I'm like, what is this? Is this Latin? Anyway, <laughs> so some read it. Whatever you owe to any relation or to any with whom you have to do, it is eminently summer up and included in this debt of love. But to love one another, this is a debt that must be always in the paying and yet always owing. Love is a debt. The law of God and the interest of mankind make it so. It is not a thing which we are left at liberty about, but it is enjoined us as the principle and summary of all duty owing one to another. For love is the fulfilling of the law. Not perfectly, but it is a good step towards it. It is inclusive of all the duties of the second table, which he specifies, verse 9, and these suppose the love of God. First table, right? See first John 4.20. If the love be sincere, it is uh, accepted as the fulfilling of the law. Surely we serve a good master that has summed up all our duty in one word, and that a short word and a sweet word. Love, the beauty and harmony of the universe. Loving and being loved is all the pleasure, joy, and happiness of an intelligent being. God is love, 1 John 4.16, and love is his image upon the soul. Where it is, the soul is well molded, and the heart fitted for every good work. Now, to prove that love is the fulfilling of the law, he gives us, one, an induction of particular precepts, verse 9. He specifies the last five of the Ten Commandments, which he observes to be all summed up in this royal law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, with an as of quality, not of equality. Um, yeah, with the same sincerity that thou lovest thyself, though not in the same measure and degree. He that loves his neighbor as himself will be desirous of the welfare of his neighbor's body, goods, and a good name, as of his own. On this is built that golden rule of doing as we would be done by. Were there no restraints of human laws in these things, no punishments incurred, which the malignity of human uh, nature hath made necessary, the law of love would, of itself, be effectual to prevent all such wrongs and injuries, and to keep peace and good order among us. In the enumeration of these commandments, the apostle puts the seventh before the sixth, and mentions this first, Thou shalt not commit adultery. For though this commonly goes under the name of love, pity it is that so good a word should be so abused, yet it is really a uh, sorry it is really as great a violation of it as killing and stealing is, which shows that true brotherly love is love to the souls of our brethren in the first place. He that tempts others to sin and defiles their minds and consciences, though he may pretend the most passionate love proverbs seven fifteen and eighteen does really hate them, just as the devil does, who wars against the soul. 2. A general rule concerning the nature of brotherly love. Love worketh no ill. Verse 10. He that walks in love, that is, a, that is actuated and governed by a principle of love, worketh no ill. He neither practices nor contrives any ill to his neighbor, to anyone that he has anything to do with. Uk ergazitai. Uh, the projecting of evil is, in effect, the performing of it.
Hence, devising iniquity is called working evil upon the bed. Micah 2.1 Love intends and designs no ill to anybody, is utterly against the doing of that which may turn to the prejudice, offense, or grief of any. It worketh no ill, that is, it prohibits the working of any ill. More is implied than is expressed. It is not only worketh no ill, but it, but it worketh all the good that may be, deviseth liberal things. For it is a sin not only to devise evil against thy neighbor, but to withhold good from those to whom it is due. Both are forbidden together. Proverbs 3, 27-29 this proves that love is the fulfilling of the law, answers all the end of it. For what else is that but to restrain us from evil doing and to constrain us to well-doing? Love is a living, active principle of obedience to the whole law. The whole law is written in the heart, if the law of love be there. So, I'll, I'll just close with a few comments, I guess. That was an interesting and I think overall helpful read and by and large something I think I would agree with. Um, you know, I, I, I've learned the more I study um, government and politics in light of scripture, you know, I used to just want to avoid it because there are so many various opinions and I was a bit more of the you know, well, if we just preach the gospel faithfully, everything else will take care of itself. Well, that's true in one sense and not true in another sense. I mean, I can, you know, we can know God's word and the theological bullet points very well. Um, but that doesn't teach you how to drive a car. That doesn't teach you how to um, hit a baseball. That doesn't teach you how to, you know, tie your shoes. So clearly just knowing doctrine doesn't cover everything you need uh, in life in a, in a direct sense. And so with government, you know, uh, you have to look at it, one, yes, through the lens of Scripture, but also see that it is uh, its own, um, I don't know what word you want to use for it, arena, sphere, and you have to have special studies in that area like you do with math or economics or science or art, uh, just about any discipline. And bringing scripture to bear on it is very important because clearly God, Christ himself, is King of kings and Lord of lords and has much to say in scripture about uh, leadership and, uh, well, governing leadership and ruling and reigning that... Um, the governing authorities are God's ministers, and um, we can't belittle that. I've never really even put a lot of thought into that, you know, five, six, seven years ago. I mean, uh, to think about that and to think about how, as Matthew Henry mentioned, the leaders are referred to as like gods in their, in their ruling. Um, they do bear a tremendous responsibility and really do have an uh, appointment by God anointing, if you want to use that, that word. Um, God has always anointed kings, his kings. But if all governing authority is now under the lordship of Christ, um, then all legitimate and true and actual authority is um, chosen, appointed, anointed by God. 
and so we do have to obey it and submit to it as such. But just as um, children should not obey their parents if their parents are telling them to do evil and sin, uh, as the wife should not regard her husband if he tells her to do that, as the husband should not listen to his boss or employer, um, uh, as we should not listen to lesser magistrates, on and on it goes. If they tell us to, to do something that is sinful or to cause us to sin by not allowing us to do something that we are commanded by God to do, and remembering flexibility in Scripture and just common sense with that, of course, um, you know, the point is, there is a limit to our obedience to the governing authorities. And yet, even though many governing authorities in the world are, are unbelieving unbelievers, and uh, even if you are a hardcore post-millennialist, I think you would still have to grant and admit that right now. I don't know how anybody could sanely say otherwise. Maybe someday, a thousand years from now, things will be different, but they're not right now. Nevertheless, there is a righteous submission even to unjust, unjust, um, to, to injustices committed by unjust rulers. <sighs> Again, this is tricky. This is not easy. We don't like, as this section is talking about, all the taxes and customs that we have to pay. Um, but, you know, notice that rendering these things, giving honor to whom honor is due, is uh, conjoined and connected with loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's easy for us to, you know, fail in that area. If we don't agree with such and such a pastor or minister or such and such a governor or, or president, um, it is easy to talk ill of them. And by the way, I'm not saying for a second that you can't speak negatively or regard them and think that they're even buffoons and stupid and evil. Um, you know, it's not pretending things to be other than what they are, but it is still to respect them in their office, in their capacity, in their position. Again, there's limits. Uh, scripture says, you know, don't receive a charge against an elder without the testimony of two or three witnesses. But it doesn't say don't ever listen to any charges, right? There is a proper means and, and, and way to, to bring charges, to, to go about that leadership, that minister in the church. So there is recourse in the church and there is going to be recourse in the government. Um, but a, a society that uh, quickly, um, especially among the Christian citizens, will just disregard the authority because they disagree with it in the slightest way to the point where they're willing just to not pay their taxes, not obey, not submit, maybe even violently revolt will never be a society that can have stability. We live in a sinful and fallen world. We are having to bear one another's burdens in the church and are not living sinlessly and perfectly above board in there, not even our ministers. And, and believe me, I'm not for a second trying to dilute the call for elders to be blameless, but blameless is not sinless and so we, we have to bear one another's burdens, including the burdens that are heaved upon us by less than perfect ministers and perhaps even ministers who ought not to be ministers. And again, there's ways to biblically go through the church courts if, if we need to. If lies and slanders and false things about God are being preached by so-called ministers, 
uh, then we ought to publicly respond to those, especially faithful ministers, but all Christians really do have a duty to respond to that. That is not executing or killing them, but it is standing for the truth as we ought to do. And we should, you know, protest abortion, abortion mills in our government. We should stand against there, but we should not go further and burn down the abortion clinic or, you know, shoot up the abortion doctor. Now, I've had this discussion in my own head and even with some students, you know, think about about it. I mean, sadly, it is protected by government, but if it was being done outside of the government confines or not by a doctor or just out in the street, then, then it would be murder. Um, and you would have a legal right at that point to, you know, stop and perhaps kill that person trying to cause an abortion uh, of a pregnant woman. It, you know, and it, it's, so it's easy to look at that and just say, well, this is silly. What's the difference? One, they're behind a wall and the other situation, they're on the streets. Yeah, I, I, I hear that and I get that, but this is the government in place and it's God's government. Not that God wills for abortion in his... Um, in, in the moral sense, in what his uh, perceptive will, what, he, what, what he's prescribed, prescribed in Scripture, but it's certainly part of his decretal will. It's what he has sovereignly decreed to come to pass. And again, God has built things a certain way, even in this fallen world. If you just try to burn these things down, it's going to be counterproductive because, it, you know, burning down an abortion clinic, even if we burnt them all down, it's not the biblical way. It's not the right way to go about things. It's just going to incite more violence and rage and anger and probably create more deaths of those in the womb. So it's difficult. It is very difficult, but it is what we are called to do. And there is this, you know, streak of Christians who will just listen to the government, even when they're telling them to sin and it's wrong and they should disobey in that case, the uh, Christians should. And there's situations where we just, you know, any slight disagreement we have, we won't, we just can't stand it. Or we don't think we should be taxed this much, and therefore we won't pay our taxes. Or anybody who's in a position that's less less financially well off than we are, if they receive a benefit that we don't think is entirely just, um, we just automatically decry them as a thief. Never mind the fact that perhaps these people themselves would not vote this way to have this very handout from the government if they could vote, never mind the fact that they're living in the society that they're living in, and we have to take things as they come. Uh, you know, receiving from the government uh, a, a check from coronavirus, um, you know, even if your business or something wasn't shut down or you, your work didn't cease, uh, I don't see how you can say that in and of itself is theft. Um, now, some would say it's not theft because we should have more money back anyways to begin with, and that, that may be a good point as well. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you can say the government is being unjust and is, is not rightly administering justice here and is um, abusing their power and in doing so is guilty of, of stealing. Um, and yet they are the governing authorities and uh, taxing us more than we think that they should is not quite the same thing as saying that every penny more than what we think is, is theft or everything they collect taxes for that we think they ought not to is inherently wrong. Um, scripture doesn't give us that 
neat and tidy of a list. Um, not to say there's no principles and guidelines, and I know others have done a lot more study on these type of things than I have, so I'm not trying to, to say anything in that level of detail. The Old Testament is full of, of case laws and so on, and, and the principles from that we should apply. But the general teaching of Matthew Henry here, following Paul's teaching, which is God's teaching, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul that is, um, the general teaching is to submit to the governing authorities. All right, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Curse, it's not good to resist. And as imperfect as our governing authorities are, they do, to some extent, restrain evil. And so we need to be subject. Be good model citizens, living peaceably with the government in as much as we are able. Well, I definitely want to pray now for our nation and our country and for us as Christians to be wise in these difficult times. Dear God, please give us wisdom to be discerning and to obey your word even when it's difficult. And as we look at a government that we have a hard time trusting many times and different peoples in our nation distrust one another and when we remember that we are all sinners um, it can be scary but we remember who is on the ultimate throne who is the king of the kings and the lord of the lord that is jesus christ the risen and ruling and reigning and one day returning lord and savior and all things are being put under our feet, the church, through Christ, who's putting all things under his feet, and we in him, Lord. And so we know that even through your imperfect ministers and your imperfect families and churches and Christians and your imperfect governors, civil rulers, who are also called ministers and your servants, you are working out your perfect plan. And so we take heart and we have hope. That with you, Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That from our perspective, Lord, you are definitely playing the long game and have been doing so. And yet, in the blink of an eye, um, things can go from awful and terrible to quite, quite good. The cross of Christ being the ultimate example, Lord. And so, help us to have faith and to persevere, for we will reap everlasting life. We will reap the rewards if we do not lose heart. If we keep on keeping on, if we trust you, Lord, and just keep going, living by your Spirit, even as we are persecuted, even as we are mistreated, and even as these days can be quite dark, Lord, we know that there is always light in you, and that we are called to be salt and light, and that your light is shining throughout the world. So we pray for repentance for those Involved in these riots, we pay for repentance and transformation among the cops that murdered this man and the cops that, that are inclined to violence. And we pray for repentance and faith truly in you, Lord, because this is ultimately not a skin problem, a racial, ethnic problem, um, even a societal, structural problem at root. The root is the individual sinful hearts of men of men and women, and that we are 
we are an unregenerate nation. We need your gospel to come forth in power and conviction for the church to be salt and light, unabashedly, unashamedly, to proclaim your word, not fearing man, but fearing you, Lord, not afraid if it offends some men, because we know that it will, but speaking the truth and the power of your word so that your spirit can go forth with the sword of the word of God as it is wielded as a sword to pierce hearts, to bring in the faithful, Lord. We know that you have the elect among every tribe and tongue and nation, so let's speak to them in such a way that their hearts will be renewed, that they will be born again because of the Holy Spirit coming in with the, the proclamation of your word without, without shame and uh, fear, but in the fullness of the truth of your word, that is speaking the truth in love. Because we love the sinner, we will not hide the full truth from them. And we are grateful that our, our parents and our ministers and whoever ultimately was, was nurturing us or leading us to Christ didn't hide the ugly truth of our own wickedness and sin. And so we saw it for what it was. We owned it for what it was by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we confess deeply and truly and genuinely from the bottom of our heart of all of our sins and hated, hated our sins and have come to hate them and to loathe them and to despise them and to love your word and your truth and your goodness, to be filled with your Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to walk in good works that we were created in Christ Jesus for. So help us to do that and to love you, to love God, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.